Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. It's so important to keep cold cases alive because it's not it's not just like a story to victims' families. Like, this is our life. Um, especially like for my family, like yesterday was 19 years that my mom's been missing. Well, I say missing, but she, since she's been gone. Welcome to The Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. You just heard Allie Bendix speaking. Her mother disappeared after a routine shift at work on August 10th, 2004. Two years later, her skeletal remains were found in a wooded area over two dozen miles from where she was last seen. The news coverage on her mom's case has been minimal and at times inaccurate. The police department's communication and cooperation with her family was rocky. And yet, almost 20 years later, Allie's aunts are still fighting tirelessly for their sister. And now Allie is joining them. Her name is Yolanda Bendix. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. In 2004, 25-year-old Yolanda Bendix lived in Jamestown, New York, and was the mother to four wonderful little girls, Caitlin, Courtney, Allison, also known as Allie, and Emily, each of whom had their own nicknames. Yolanda had built herself a family of her own that was starting to emulate the large family she grew up with. For this episode, we had the privilege of speaking with Yolanda's daughter, Allie, who was only two years old when her mother disappeared. Her sisters were one, five, and eight. Because of her young age, Allie doesn't have any memories of her mother, and she's had to remember her mother through other people's memories and stories. So this question is like really, really hard for me because I was only two when my mom went missing and four when she was found. So I don't have any physical memories of her. When I do these like podcasts and I do interviews, I'm advocating for the mom I missed out on rather than the mom I should have had my whole life. But one of my favorite stories from my cousin was she, all the kids were at, I think my grandparents' house and she went out and bought all the kids. Happy Meals. And that's significant because uh, our family's huge. She has 10 siblings and all my aunts and uncles have multiple kids. We didn't have any second cousins at that time, but that's a lot of kids. I couldn't even tell. I have like 25 cousins. So that was a lot. So I just think hearing that she was like a sweet person. I've heard she's really outgoing. She took care of four girls by herself. She had help from her dads, but you know, main, she was the main parent. Um, very attentive, hardworking, supporting four girls. So yeah, that's what she was like. Allie went on to elaborate what it was like growing up with only other people's memories of her mom. I also think one of the saddest things is that, you know, I was only two. My two older sisters were five and eight. And people think that they have like these memories of my mom. But like in all reality, like traumas like hit them so hard that they don't have the greatest memories. I know my older sister, my oldest sister, um, I've asked her, I'm like, do you have any memories of mom you can tell me about? And she's like, I, I really wish I could, but I don't. Like, I, I just, I can't remember anything. So that kind of hurts. And then, of course, I have my younger sister. She's a year younger than me. No memories for her either. So 
yeah, we were all robbed of that. Through these memories, Ellie has been able to imagine the type of person her mother was. And she knows that her mother loved her and her sisters dearly. Yolanda's mother wrote on the website findyolanda.com that Yolanda had a heart as big as a house. Yet she was strict enough and vivacious enough to have been able to see her kids through their teenage years. Then on the morning of August 10th, 2004, Yolanda called her sister Margaret. And she told her that she had something important to share with her but she didn't say exactly what it was. That's because they planned to talk again later that day. My mom had called my aunt early in the day, my Aunt Margaret, and she told her that she had something to tell her. She was going to call her later. From the tone of it, my aunt said she thought she was going to tell her that she was pregnant again. But when my mom's body was found and they did testing and all the super cool forensic stuff, uh, they found out that she wasn't. So it wasn't that. We don't know what she was going to tell her. Later that day, Yolanda worked a closing shift at the Family Dollar Store, located at 194 Fluvana Avenue in Jamestown. Now, according to Yolanda's coworker, their shift ended at 8 p.m., and she last saw Yolanda at around 8.10 or 8.20 p.m. Yolanda's sister, Anne, told WGRZ, quote, her and her coworker were locking up, and her coworker said that they parted ways. Yolanda seemed like she was fine. I don't think she said she saw anything out of the ordinary. Then at 8.20 p.m., Yolanda's brother Frank, who was watching Yolanda's daughters, called Yolanda and asked her when she was going to be home. Yolanda said that she needed to cash a check and pick up some groceries. She asked if they needed anything for the house. After that, she said that she would be home. But when Frank called her again 15 minutes later, Yolanda didn't answer. She called him to tell him that she was going to go pick up some groceries for the house. And he ended up calling her like 15 minutes later and she didn't answer, which really wasn't that alarming. You know, maybe she was driving, maybe she was grocery shopping. That's fine. But time went on and she just never came home and he kept calling her. He even had my sister call her too. My oldest sister, Caitlin, had, you know, was calling the family. And by the time the next day tomorrow, like she didn't come home they knew something was up and they reported her missing. No one heard from Yolanda again. She was last seen wearing her work uniform, khaki pants, and a black polo shirt with the Family Dollar Store logo on it. Eventually, after Yolanda didn't return home and stop picking up her phone, her family got worried. And rightfully so. Everyone who knew Yolanda knew that this was strange behavior. I mean, she had four kids under the age of 10. She wouldn't stop answering her phone, let alone have just left them. So the family decided to go to the police department for help. But as Allie told us, it wasn't much help at all. When they reported her missing, it was kind of some bullcrap from the Jamestown Police Department. And they were like, well, you know, she's got four kids. She could be stressed. She could have ran off. But my family knows that she would never leave her girls behind. If she, like I said, she has, we're a huge family. If she like was too stressed or something, she could ask any one of her siblings to take us for a couple of days. You know, she could get away. She could relax. She, she wasn't just going to up and leave and not tell anyone. When the investigation into Yolanda's disappearance finally began, it was clear that something bad had happened to her and the police categorized her disappearance as suspicious. So the police spoke with Yolanda's coworker, Nicole, who was the last person to see her. But Nicole was ruled out and didn't have much information for the police. 
Then on August 11th, the day after Yolanda was last seen, her car was found. Not, however, in the family dollar store parking lot where it had been parked during Yolanda's shift. But instead, it was parked in a parking lot of an Arby's around a half mile west of the family dollar store. Now, there have been a lot of inaccurate reports about who found Yolanda's car, but Allie was able to clear things up for us. It was my aunt, Chris, who found the car. It was not the police. The police interviewed the Arby's employees, but none of them could recall seeing Yolanda or her car on the night of the 10th. Additionally, no one could determine what time Yolanda's car had been dropped off. After the car was found, police began investigating the area around Arby's and search parties were formed by Yolanda's family. The police looked for footprints and tire tracks around Yolanda's car and made castings of those that they were able to find. A lot of people gathered together to help search for Yolanda. In fact, at one search, over 100 people showed up. I do remember doing like little things like pulling people together, wearing t-shirts with my mom's face on it. A story that stands out to me is my Aunt Anne. At the time, I believe her son was like 10 or 11, maybe 12. And he would go on these searches with her as well. And at a certain point in time, she thought to herself that she probably shouldn't take him on these because what if they come across her body? Because at some point, like it just kind of switched that like, we're not looking for her. We're looking for her body. Another story is like, I remember someone in my family telling me that my grandma used to just walk around Jamestown, handing out flyers with my mom's face on it and hanging them out or hanging them up and stuff like that, which I just think is incredibly sad. Yeah, that's, that's what I remember. More formal searches were also conducted in which divers looked into the Chattaquin River, which was nearby, and a local landfill was searched by police dogs. Then a quarry was searched, but nothing was found. Yolanda's cell phone hadn't been used and her bank accounts were untouched. All of this leading police to yet another dead end. Then hope was sparked a week after Yolanda went missing. That's because a rumor started circulating that her body was in a dumpster. But the rumor wasn't true and hope was dampened again. One month later in early September, heavy rain caused the drain system in Jamestown to flood, bringing things that were intended to stay lost to the surface. This included things belonging to Yolanda. At the intersection of 8th and Monroe in Jamestown, someone found Yolanda's purse. They called the police. Police then found Yolanda's keys near 6th and Jefferson. All of the items recovered were sent to a forensic lab for testing. Throughout the investigation, several people close to Yolanda were questioned, including a Jamestown cop named Michael Watson. Yolanda's sister Anne talked about it when she told WGRZ, I remember when they first moved to Jamestown. She had a crush on this cute cop. Then in our exclusive interview with Allie, she told us a little more about it. So Michael Watson was a police officer of the Jamestown Police Department. My mom had had a crush on him for like a long time. I think it was like 10 years. Like she really, really liked this guy. Just thought he was the cutest thing. They ended up getting in a sexual relationship. However, he was married. I don't really know if it ended or not, but I do know that he would come by our house and sit outside. He would call her while he was at work. I guess he worked like the late shift, like super early graveyard shift. And he would, you know, sit there and talk to her super early in the morning. Um, He would pull her over and talk to her. He was actually assigned to my mom's case and he was on it, did not come forward about it for a whole week. After that, 
he was suspended, I believe without pay, and kicked off the case, obviously. And after that, after that was like all revealed that he knew my mom and had involvement, a lot of women came forward, some of them involved with city working and stuff like that, saying that he had harassed them. So overall, Mike Watson is a creeper. He is a harasser. Yeah, that's about all I have to say about him. Michael actually got into some trouble with Yolanda's case because it took him almost a week to tell his superiors about his relationship with Yolanda and to actually take himself off the case. Working her case, of course, is a huge conflict of interest, and he was placed on administrative leave for his failure to disclose his relationship with Yolanda. And now a word from today's sponsor. Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Shopify is a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock wherever you are. With Shopify, you can connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business, take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash murder diaries, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash murder diaries to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash murder diaries. The FBI eventually questioned Michael, but he gave an alibi and he passed a polygraph exam and has never been formally declared a suspect. He was very forthcoming with everything. He did take a polygraph test. He did subject himself to heavy interrogation without a lawyer. Carl, on the other hand, lawyered up very quickly. That leads us to the other person police were interested in, Clarence Carl Cart, who happens to be the father of Yolanda's youngest daughter. Allie was able to tell us a lot about her mother's relationship with Carl. So here's some of my conversation with her. Just starting from the beginning, my mom met Carl. Sorry, he goes. his name is Clarence. He goes by Carl too. So you might hear me use those interchangeably. But Carl, she met him in the 90s when she was like 13 years old. And they did have a relationship. I don't know how long the relationship was, but ultimately my mom left that situation. He was... It, it was it was it was toxic. He was abusive. So she got out of that. Later down the road in the early 2000s, they must have crossed paths again because she ended up pregnant with this child. She didn't tell anyone that my younger sister was Carl's child. In fact, I don't think my family knew until after she had already gone missing. But Carl found out 11 months after sorry, excuse me, after my younger sister was born because the state petitioned him for paternity. 
it's assumed by my family that she didn't want to tell anyone because, or even Carl included, because she was just scared of him. So is it safe to assume that he found out about his paternity of your sister about a month before she disappeared? He found out about his daughter um, six months. Wait, I'm sorry. Hang on, sorry, I gotta do the math right quick. I think, yeah, I think it was six months before she went missing. Okay, so it was really fresh knowledge. He found out, but no one else in the family knew. So I'm assuming that he didn't really have an active role in your sister's life while your mom was alive. Correct. And I don't think my mom wanted him to, because like I said, she was keeping this a secret. She wasn't trying to do it to be deceitful. She did it because she was afraid of him. And I know people are going to be like, well, why would she have a baby with him if she's afraid of him? And all I can really say to that is toxic relationships, especially with someone you've known since you were like 13 years old, can make you do crazy things. Maybe it was just like a one hookup and, you know, uh oh, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm going to keep the baby, but I'm not going to tell you. Either way, I think that kind of stuff is irrelevant, but it happens. And yeah. When you say that she was afraid of him, is it because of their toxic relationship? Either he was abusive or just not a good person to be around her? Or was he known to be dangerous and active in like that type of those activities? All of the above. In 2004, Carl lived in New York, but he had strong connections to Florida. Such strong connections, in fact, that he had an outstanding arrest warrant for a probation violation in Florida and thus was considered a fugitive. Carl was questioned in Yolanda's case around three weeks after her disappearance, but he has not been declared an official suspect. Just to reiterate, Allie told us that Carl was living in New York at the time of Yolanda's disappearance, not in Florida. That has been something that has been confused in several publications about Yolanda's case, so we want to make sure that's crystal clear. The then Jamestown Police Chief, William McLaughlin, told the Post-Journal, During that investigation, we learned that one of the individuals we had an opportunity to speak with maybe wanted out of the state of Florida regarding a robbery. Later this morning, we did learn and confirm that the state of Florida has issued a warrant of extradition for an individual and requested that we arrest him as a fugitive from justice for extradition. Now, this wasn't Carl's first run-in with the law. That's because in 1997, he was sentenced to New York State Prison on not one but two counts of burglary and one count of grand larceny. He was eventually paroled in 2001. It makes sense why Carl was interviewed by the police. He was a former romantic partner of Yolanda, and they had a child together. Interviewing him was plain common sense, but there's more than just that the police felt warranted them interviewing Carl. At around 8.10 p.m. on August 10th, the night Yolanda went missing, Carl was seen on surveillance footage walking out of a quick-fill station at Fluvana Avenue and Washington Street, which is across the street from the Family Dollar Store where Yolanda worked. Carl was walking out of the gas station at the same time that Yolanda was leaving work, right across the street from each other. According to senior investigator Tom DeZino, Yolanda and Carl were seen within a minute and 20 seconds of each other. Although not an official suspect, Carl is considered a person of interest in the case. In addition to interviewing him, police searched his car for any connection to Yolanda's disappearance. 
on September 10th, 2006, exactly 25 months after Yolanda disappeared, hunters found skeletal remains in a wooded area in the town of Sinclairville, 30 miles away from Jamestown. Dental records confirmed that it was Yolanda. Police determined that Yolanda's manner of death was homicide, but her cause of death has not been released. I asked Allie if there's any physical evidence in the case, but she said she isn't sure. Nothing's been mentioned to me. Uh, a lot of things are still like really, really tight-lipped with uh, the detectives, especially since it's been moved over to the cold case unit that they just formed in 2021. So I haven't heard anything about that. From what I've heard, and I see them post on Facebook, they have gotten quite a few tips since they've started this cold case unit. And some of them have been like, corroborated as true. So that's encouraging, but nothing like physical to my knowledge. Yolanda's family was finally able to bury their beloved daughter and mother in November of 2007. Yolanda's case is cold, but it's not closed. In 2022, it was announced that the county sheriff's office, cold case investigators, were looking into Yolanda's case, specifically the surveillance footage of Carl Cart at the gas station. The footage has also been released to the public to see if anyone in Jamestown has any additional information. In the video, he's wearing a black sleeveless shirt and has tattoos up and down both arms. He has long, dark hair that's in a ponytail. Police hope that this image of Carl will help jog people's memories of August 10th, 2004. Investigator DeZino told the Buffalo News, we're looking for people who saw them, the movement, these people. If they interacted, where they interacted, that's what we're looking for. Despite all of this, Carl is no longer a person of interest in the case. He's rather an individual we need information on, according to investigators. It's believed that Carl currently lives in Florida. The police's reinvestigation into the case is great news. And thankfully, it's come with a stronger relationship between the police and Yolanda's family compared to the original investigation. But before um, my mom's murder, my family was already having problems with JPD with other members of my family. And it pretty much stayed there. And a lot of the problems from JPD was because they didn't want to, it just didn't seem like they were making any like strides in the case. Like it was pretty plateaued. And then it finally got take, taken over by the um, cold case unit, detective Tom DeZino and Tom Tarpley. They've been, they've been great. Anytime I have a question, they're very open with me. The ADA, Emily, I don't know her last name, but Emily, she's been great. I just recently talked to the DA, Jason Schmidt. He's pretty great too. So now it's way better than what it used to be. And like now that it's been handed over to them, we finally are seeing that there are still some things that have been left unsaid. We also asked Allie about the FBI's involvement in the case and what her thoughts are on that. I know that the FBI was at least momentarily involved with the case. Are they still having some involvement or has it strictly been given back to the cold case unit? That's a good question. That I'm not 100% sure of. I would imagine that they didn't just drop it, but it's not like they're side by side working with the DA and the detectives. I'm sure like if testing needs to be done on, done on things that they're sending it over to them and stuff like that. Allie's family lived through the unthinkable when her mother was taken from her. Four children were left without a mother and several of them without memories of her. They were also left without each other. 
After Yolanda's murder, her daughters were sent to live with their fathers, apart from each other. But they haven't stopped fighting for their mother. When my mom passed away, we all went with different fathers. My mom had four different kids with four different fathers. So we grew up apart. We uh, would see each other every now and then, but we all went our different ways. And um, everyone kind of dealt with dealt with it differently. My younger sister, her dad is a person of interest in this case. So she obviously deals with it way different than we do. And while she she does advocate for our mom, she does post things about our mom. She doesn't go as hard because of her father's involvement. My older sister, my oldest sister, sorry. She definitely does do some things. I know she like obviously talks to the detectives on the case, the DA. But publicly, she's more reserved because so much time has gone on that she just feels like, I don't want to say hopeless because she's still hopeful, but it's it's not the same anymore. And then my one sister, she's pretty quiet about it. She's just kind of to herself. But yes, sorry to answer your question. Long story short, I've kind of made myself the public face out of her daughter's. Because my aunts are still very much out there. Today, they're asking for your help in their fight for justice. And really, that's why we cover cases like Yolanda's. To bring exposure and help get these families justice. So one of the ways you guys can support is um, obviously follow Natalie and Paige. Share this with people. Also go check out Derek Lavasser's coverage on my mom's story at Detective Perspective. Um, you can join the Facebook page, Justice for Yolanda Bendix. I guess the biggest thing for me is uh, sharing this. A lot of people, I've always said this, a lot of people don't like, I say, I'm putting up quotes, you guys can't see me, but don't like true or cold cases because they're not solved. Most people like a, 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 I don't want to say a happy ending, but like they want closure, stuff like that. It's so important to keep cold cases alive. Um, because it's not, it's not just like a story to victims' families. Like this is our life, especially like for my family, like yesterday was 19 years that my mom's been missing. Well, I say missing, but she, since she's been gone. So keeping cold case victims stories alive keeps pressure on the public to, you know, not forget about it, keeps pressure on the police to keep looking into it, not give up hope. People know things. You'd be surprised. So yeah, please share. Go like that Facebook page. Send this podcast to a friend. That's, yeah. Yolanda's mother also fought for justice. Unfortunately, she's now passed away. But we'd like to leave you with a poem she wrote for her daughter. The night of August 10th, 2004, the evening sky seemed to shine like a gigantic sapphire dome, covering our area as far as our eyes could see. That was the night our precious daughter disappeared. She was later found murdered. Many people in this part of our state remember Yolanda as the upbeat, multitasking young mom, as many young moms are today. Spending her time between her job at the family dollar store, dropping her oldest daughter off at school, shopping and producing meals for her lovely bunch. Sometimes she took time to enjoy a breakfast with her dad and me on a day off and with her friends and acquaintances but she was always careful that the children were in safe care with me, another reliable family member, or the friend who lived upstairs. She always came home on time as planned or called if she would be a little late. Sadly, that's all over now. 
a perpetrator of evil is still running the streets of Western New York. We're still on his trail and we still care. I can visualize in my mind the evening she disappeared. I remember the hopes, dreams, and feelings of my 25-year-old daughter that year. I remember the big bear hug we shared about a month before she disappeared and her promise of, I'll be okay, I'm going to live a long, long time. I was apprehensive that day about her because a coworker mentioned to me something might happen to her, but was unable to mention a name. Currently, the FBI is offering up to $20,000 and Crime Stoppers is offering another $1,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Yolanda Bindix. Investigators asked anyone who remembers seeing either Bindix or Cart between 8 p.m. Tuesday, August 10, 2004 and 6 a.m. Wednesday, August 11, 2004 to call them at 716-753-4578 or 716-753-4579. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at The Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.